Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Our focus being the last three verses, verses 18, uh, 19, and 20. As we turn to that passage, we give our attention together to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I don't have a page number for you, uh, found after uh, Acts and Romans in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus for the reading of God's word, again, our focus will be on uh, those last three verses, 18 uh, to 20. As we tackle this this morning, I will have a bit of a little longer introduction as we tackle this, uh, just in light of, uh, yeah, the purpose and reason uh, for the text selection uh, today. Uh, So we're hitting the idea this morning of purity, and we are hitting it specifically uh, as part of this call. And... uh, We want to be aware of this. There is a general call and has been issued one. I'm not sure who made it first. I know the FRC, Free Reformed Churches, uh, wrote the churches and encouraged us to have a Sunday where we preach uh, God's word on the purity he gives us in Christ and calls us to. I know ARPA encouraged us in this direction as well, if you're familiar with ARPA. I know John MacArthur, a pastor in the U.S., hearing the already given call, then issued another call uh, to Canadian U.S. churches to, to have this kind of focus on a day like today. As mentioned, this is um, instigated or brought on us uh, by the passing into law of Bill C-4. It is now a criminal code statute, something like 320.101. I, 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 don't quote me. Uh, it's a bunch of numbers, and it's in there somewhere. Uh, but it's now been made law. And as mentioned before with our prayer, it is a um, law which makes it illegal to influence someone's... Um, uh, sexual expression in any way except one that is away from heterosexual activity or away from the idea of purity as found in Scripture. Okay, so if we understand this, you can't influence someone's decision, thoughts, actions, perception of right and wrong unless you're influencing them away from what the Bible teaches. That is legal. But if you are saying we must obey God's word on this, that is illegal. In fact, the the law is so broad that even praying with someone about this is potentially considered conversion therapy and outlawed by the gospel. Uh, Pardon me, by by our government, (laughs) definitely not by the gospel. 
So as we hit this topic, it's pretty weighty. And we want to hit this and just want to have a few things that we say as we begin to hit this and begin to open this up. And the first thing is just to have a caution. A caution. As we hear these changes in our culture, as we see them in our society, as we witness them in our government, we want to be careful not to make the church all about morality. We don't want to fall on the other side and think that we exist as a church to fight for an ethical standard in our society. There is an ethical and moral standard for our society. It is given us by God. But as a church, our first priority is not merely to argue for external behavior or for morality. Our goal, as those shaped by the gospel, is to know that mankind is lost in sin and the only thing that will open the eyes of the blind is the preaching of Christ. Not morality, but the gospel of a God who so loved fallen sinners that he took upon himself our flesh and his flesh was broken so that our broken flesh could be restored. That is the hope that we have for our nation. That is the hope we have for our world. And we never substitute a hope of a moral behavior for the gospel that brings life to the dead. So first and foremost, we want to have that caution. In the same vein then, we also want to have the caution of not creating a new uh, standard of what it means to be a faithful church. As if if we preach the right thing on a Sunday, if we take the Sunday we're called to have and focus on sexual morality, look at us. We are among the elite. We are the faithful in the church. And that's not where we want to go either. Some churches may indeed encourage this on this Sunday as part of a stand with many other churches across Canada and some across the states stand together on this and to hold together in the unity of the gospel on this. Others may choose not to. Uh, and it may not be that they choose not to simply because they no longer believe the Bible. Uh, this is not the standard of what is a true and faithful church. That being said, why are we doing it? And why are we taking time today to have this kind of a focus? Well, though they need the gospel, uh, though the heart of what they need is to know the truth of Christ, this does not mean that we should not speak. Uh, We had as our um, assurance of pardon a verse from Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 18. And uh, I want to read you what came just before that verse in verse 18. It's verse 17. That's always how the logic works. Anyway, it says this, Isaiah 1, 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I want to give you a few quotes today and readings from a book by Kevin DeYoung called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And this is the first quote I'm going to give you. We need to remember this controversy was not dreamed up by evangelical Christians. The reason there's so much discussion about issues like abortion, euthanasia, and same-sex marriage, and now gender transition, is because many have sought to legalize and legitimize actions that until 50 years ago were considered immoral and illegal. When it comes to the cultural flashpoints of our day, it hardly seems wise to avoid talking about what everyone else is talking about. Moreover, uh, we have seen in the church a uh, already a tendency to minimize the Bible's teaching on purity. I I, I won't uh, give uh, the pastor's name, 
but there has been a famous quote, uh, not famous, a quote that's been going around. And it says this, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what the Bible shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Did you hear that? We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, shout with what the Bible shouts about. And when it comes to the Bible, the Bible appears to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. This is horrific teaching. And it's wrong. It's very wrong. We live in a world today where many think that the place where the church must speak the loudest is the place where the culture is already speaking. We have social justice movements in the church that call for us to speak very loudly against residential schools. And residential schools were an awful thing and the church should condemn them. They were not the right move. To speak loudly about racism and racism is an awful thing and we should condemn it. But not to speak about things like abortion, not to speak about things like euthanasia, not to think, speak about things like purity, about gender, about the love God has for people, even, even when they are so broken and so struggling that they, they believe God made the mistake of putting them in the wrong body. And beloved, to speak only where the culture speaks and to allow the culture to determine where the Bible speaks the truth is not to actually believe or say the Bible whispers about certain things. It's to say instead that we will no longer hear what the Bible teaches if the culture is not already saying it. That is not how the church is to behave. The church is not to have her message made quieter when the culture is not speaking and her message made louder where the culture is speaking. Our complete submission must be to the word of God and where the word of God speaks, we must speak and where the word of God speaks, does not speak, we we should not speak. When it comes to the idea of morality, again, quoting from Kevin DeYoung, he says this, the first step in delegitimizing what the Bible says about sexual sin is to suggest the Bible hardly says anything about the topic. But it's precisely this sort of sin that characterizes those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the idea of sexual sin is so prevalent in the Bible that it is listed numerous times in every single major list in the New Testament that cites vices the Christian must put off. You would be hard-pressed, says de Young, to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, and more seriously condemned in the New Testament than sexual sin. To say the Bible whispers about sexual sin is to speak more about how you've become hard of hearing than it is to speak about the message of the Bible. So a caution. We don't want to make the church all about trying to speak a morality. And yet an encouragement Encouragement to realize this topic is actually central to the Bible. This topic is a sin that God condemns because he loves us. And if we do not show the reality of the danger of perversion, we are allowing those we are called to defend and speak up for in the promotion of justice and the defense of the vulnerable to be victimized while the church is silent. The greatest danger of our new law is, of course, the rebellion it has against God. 
For the first victims will be the children who are led by these things to begin going down paths that will destroy them body, soul, and spirit. And to be silent in such a setting, to be silent would be to share the guilt. So, that's why we're taking a little time to speak on 1 Corinthians 6. And uh, that's why we're going to have a little bit of a talk about this this morning. Let's then move from the intro, which was very long, uh, to our sermon. And uh, we'll try to keep you in in reasonable time. Uh, What do we do then about the idea of purity? What do we do about the idea of sexual immorality? And and we're going to start off with verse 18. The first thing we need to do that Paul gives as a command to the church is us flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. I don't know if you know what it means to flee. I, I think most of us do, even if we don't always know how to spell it. Flee can be spelt in two different ways. F-L-E-E and F-L-E-A. Do you know the difference? If you spell flee, F-L-E-A, it is one of those little creatures that sits on the back of a dog or a cat, Right? And you have to give powders or collars or pills to try and kill the fleas. That's the idea of F-L-E-A. But what does F-L-E-E mean? That's what the Bible is using it here. What does F-L-E-E mean? Well, flee means to run away. All right? It means not just to run away, but to run away fast. I want you to imagine, uh, you know, you are, and, 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 and I don't want to scare people, but imagine you're in your home, and it's dark, it's nighttime, and you're sleeping, and someone breaks in. They're angry, they're mad, they've got a weapon, and your mom or dad comes and wakes you up and says, Run! Run! What do you do? Well, you get out of your bed, and you run, don't you? I hope I'm not scaring someone. (laughs) That's the idea of fleeing. The idea of fleeing is that you see something so dangerous, you don't try and take it on. You don't try and stand against it. You get out of there. You run. And when Paul is speaking to the church of Christ, when Paul is speaking to those God loves and Christ came to save, he says to them, flee. Flee sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? What is this word? Well, in the Greek, it's the word porneon. Porneon, and it simply is a word in Greek that embraces all kinds of immorality. It essentially embraces everything, and when we think of this kind of thing, everything outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. That is the place, and I don't know if you've ever heard the old story about fire, and I just used it already, but I'll use it again. The idea of um, intimacy is often described as something like a fire. When fire is in the fireplace, it's a beautiful thing. We enjoy cooking our marshmallows, perhaps, or we enjoy sitting there with a good book on a nice, cold January day, and, and we love the fire. But when the fire is outside the fireplace, when it's, when it's on the walls of the house, when it's, when it's taking down the curtains, then, then fire is to be feared. That's something not to be had. And the idea of sexual immorality is the idea of taking the intimacy that belongs between a husband and a wife, and having that, or having the echoes of that, or the... Uh, deception of what they believe that is in any place outside of marriage. So sexual immorality um, can be applied to when a boyfriend and girlfriend 
are not maintaining purity in their relationship. When they are, as a boyfriend and girlfriend, behaving with each other as if they were married and they're not, when the man is called to give himself up to make his wife holy, and instead he is using that relationship to satisfy himself and defile his girlfriend, that would be sexual immorality. When people are looking at images on the internet and looking at things they should not be clicking on or pursuing them, when we are watching entertainment that is showing to us in our effort to be entertained pictures and images and videos of what is to be held honorable among all and kept between a husband and wife exclusively in their relationship. And we are participating in that through visual images or through imagination. Even the lust of that is considered sexual immorality. Jesus said in Matthew 5, anyone who looks after a woman with lust in his heart for her has committed adultery with her. When Paul says flee sexual immorality, he is not speaking just to the world. In fact, his focus is upon the church. He's not speaking about just the idea of homosexuality or the idea of gender dysphoria. He's speaking to you and to me, and he's saying, God loves your purity. Christ died to make you holy, so don't defile what Christ died to make pure. Flee it. Run it. Run from it. And in this way, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to realize and understand that the fight for purity and the call for purity, first and foremost, addresses you and addresses me. Do you know what it is to be a Christian? That's what Paul's going to do. Do you know what it is to be a Christian? That's where Paul's going to ground this call. He's going to base it on the fact of what it means to be purchased by the blood of Jesus. Do you know what that means? means that God has loved you so much he gave his son upon the cross to make you holy. Christ died upon the tree. He felt the full wrath of a holy God for all your sins and he bore it with joy. The joy set before him as Hebrews 12 says because the joy he had was the idea of making you holy, making you pure, making you like him. And Paul says, because of that, flee from sin. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Don't think you're strong enough to take it on. Isn't that the way some people think? They watch certain shows. They watch certain videos. And you might say to them, I don't know if Christians should be watching that kind of show. And they answer you something like this. Well, you might not be strong enough to handle that. But I am. Now I want you to think about that. Okay, let's go back to the illustration. You've got a burglar coming in your house. He's armed, guns, knives, machetes, nunchucks. And mom or dad wakes up the seven-year-old, says there's a burglar in the house. They're mean, they're angry, they're shouting that they want to take us all down. Run! And that seven-year-old gets up and says, Mom, don't worry. I watched the karate kid. I'm going to take that guy on. And mom or dad says, no. You can't win that fight. When we think of sexual immorality, God says to us, you can't win this fight. When Potiphar's wife tried to convince Joseph that he should spend his time with her. Though she grabbed his robe, he ran from the room and fled. And God says, don't fight this one. 
flee it. Flee it. I won't bring out the stats of how many people in the church struggle with pornography. And I won't bring out the stats of how many times we have watched marriages break down within the church of Christ. But I will say this, God loves you so much. He would have no single one of his children fall. Run. Run. And why? Why? And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Why? Why is purity so important? Why is holiness in the body so important? Well, Paul goes on to say this, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, when we think of that passage, it's a, it's a tough one, and many writers and theologians spend a lot of time of trying to understand what it means that every other sin a person commits is outside the body. And people have wrestled with that and said, well, what about drunkenness? What about drug addiction? What about suicide? Aren't those against the body? Surely those ruin the body. And they do. But somehow, for some reason, Paul is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that sexual sin is another level. It's something distinct. Unlike anything else, all other sins, says Paul, that you commit are outside the body. But somehow, this idea of the sexually immoral person, they sin against their own body. A few things we can know by that. One, that we need to consider this sin very seriously. But two, that the rest of the passage will tell us what it means that this person sins against their own body. When we try and understand what Paul means in verse 18, we just have to keep going. We have to keep going. Paul says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And if you like to study the Bible and if you like trends, you can look at the words, do you not know, throughout 1 Corinthians, and you'll find a lot of them. If you just look at chapter 6, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 6, verse 1, let your eyes skim with me, okay? Do you not know is found in verse 2. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15. Do you not know their bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16. Do you not know he who is joined to a prostitute? Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And what we learn from these things is that Paul uses this phrase in many times to defend his teaching. He says, do this, do this, or don't you know this? Right? Um, you know, when... when I don't know. Maybe it's when a, a, a father is teaching a son or daughter about filling up the car with gas. And they're saying to them, listen, when you go to the pump, use unleaded fuel. Uh, pardon me. Yeah, not, not, not diesel. Use the unleaded fuel. Because don't you know that if you put in diesel, you'll wreck our car? <laughs> right? The idea of the don't you know is a way in which Paul is basically teaching why the first thing is so important. So he says to us, listen, Flee sexual morality. Every other sin someone commits is outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against their own body. Because don't you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who you have from God. Now, let's just open this up a little bit and let's, let's talk about this a little bit this morning. What does it mean that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? I want to ask you a question. For the first 4,000 years, well, maybe not that long. Let's see. Moses was around, what, 1440. So for the first 1,400 years, uh, first 1,400 years, the holiest place there was on the surface of the planet 
was either the tabernacle or the temple of God. Do you know that? 1,400 years. The tabernacle or the temple of God represented the, the place in all the world where God was said to dwell. If you remember the names of the temple and what was inside the temple, there was both the holy place and the holy... Got to make sure you're still awake. Holy of... Holy. Also known as the most holy place. And in that most holy place, there was that ark of the covenant, that little box made of gold where God was said to dwell between the angel's wings above the ark of the covenant. There was no more holy place in all the world than this one. In fact, it was so holy, no one could go in there except for once a year, the high priest, one man in all the world who represented the people of God, could go in there only once a year and he had to go in there with the blood of two different animals, one for the blood of his own sin and one for the blood, uh, one with the blood for the sin of the people. Uh, once a year, such a holy place. I, I'm going to borrow a story now from a man named Sam Albury. And Sam Albury is a Christian who has some beautiful testimonies about how God redeems the body. If you don't know him, you can Google him and, and read some of his stuff. He's excellent. He writes about a time when he went to Jerusalem and he went to what's called the Wailing Wall. Do you know what the Wailing Wall is in Jerusalem? The Wailing Wall is the last remaining wall, supposedly, of the temple. Now, it's not part of the temple proper. It's part of the extension of the temple that King Herod built in his time, uh, Herod the Great. So it wasn't part of Solomon's temple. It wasn't part of the rebuilt temple by Zerubbabel. It was part of the extension that uh, Herod the Great put on the temple. But it's the last remaining physical section of the temple, which once represented where God dwelt. And when he went to the Wailing Wall, he saw what happened there. And what he saw there was all the Jews by the wall wailing. Why were all the Jews by this wall wailing? Wailing means they were crying really loud. Okay, uh, If you know what it's like to fall off your bike and you rip up your knee and your foot and whatever else, right? I won't do it too long. Wailing. Why were the Jews by this wall wailing? Well, they were wailing because it was the last remnant of the most holy place on the surface of the earth. And that most holy place on the entire surface of the earth was destroyed because of their sin. You may remember when the temple was rebuilt in the book of Ezra, how when they laid the foundation in Ezra chapter 3, the young people all rejoiced and praised God, but the older saints who had seen the temple before in Solomon's day and who knew what had been lost, they began to weep. You remember that? So you could not distinguish the weeping, says Ezra and Ezra 3, from the rejoicing. What happened? Well, the young generation was so grateful that things were being rebuilt and restored, but the older generation, they knew what was being restored was nothing compared to what they lost, and they knew that what they lost was because of their sin. They were the reason the temple of God was destroyed. They were the reason the temple of God no longer stood. And the Jews come to the wall and they wail there because God's presence among man is no longer visible as it was in the days of the temple. And they realize that it's because of the sin of the nation that God has destroyed this most holy place. But they don't understand it all correctly, do they? 
And the thing that Sam Albury found as he stood at this wailing wall and watched these Jews weeping over the destruction of the temple, what came to him as he stood there watching them was 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is from God? Do you know the most holy place in the surface of the world for over 1,400 years is gone and what replaces it is you? Do you know that? Do you know if you're a Christian this morning that your physical body, which you may not always like, okay, we talk about gender dysphoria, but let's be honest. I don't think a lot of us are always super happy with our bodies. We find things about our bodies you want to change. Maybe we're too heavy, we think, or we're too thin. Maybe we wish we were taller. Maybe we wish we were shorter. Maybe we hate our nose. Maybe we hate the fact that every time we exercise, we get a sore back. Maybe we wish we finally had our bum knee or ankle made better. All kinds of things that we don't like about our bodies. And God says, your body is the place I dwell now, we tend to not think that way as Christians. We tend to think that a God couldn't possibly mean our physical body because we have this problem which we've adopted from extra-biblical, non-biblical philosophy that the body is actually not something God cares about. All God really cares about is the soul. It's a duality, we say, where God begins to care about the soul but not about our bodies, and that's a lie. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why should you be pure in your body? Why should you guard what you do in your body? Because God actually dwells in your body. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now you, you, you apply this to, to what it means to have sorrow over sin. You apply this to what it means to experience repentance. The Jews come to the destruction of the temple and they grieve because they know their sin has led to the brokenness of the place where God's holiness was made to shine. And when you fall into sin, and when you turn away from Christ, and when you do the things you know God would not have you do, do you know your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is broken down? So the place where God's holiness is meant to shine and be on display becomes a place that instead gives glory and honor to what is evil and to what is wicked. And the reason Paul says that we have to be holy and pure is because we need to realize that when God saves you, he saves you body and soul. And your body belongs to him. Don't take what belongs to Christ and unite it to what belongs to the devil. Don't you know? Your body is more precious to God than the temple ever was. It had gold in every place. It had offerings and sacrifices, but your body in Christ is a better dwelling place for the Holy Spirit than gold and silver could ever be. So beautiful is the work of Jesus to make you gods. And that's where he goes on with. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, we have a problem. And the problem we have is thinking that the things we don't like about our bodies can be fixed by changing our body. The things we don't like about our bodies can be fixed by changing our body. One man wrote, The things that you don't like about your body can't be changed by your body. 
They can only be changed by the body of Christ broken for you. You were bought. What makes this body significant? What can make your body a temple of the Holy Spirit? Why in the world would God take something like you or me and make it this most holy place equal to the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, where God himself would dwell? How could God do that? How is that not blasphemous? How is that not blasphemous? The answer is it's not blasphemous because of the blood of Christ. You aren't who you used to be if you stand in Christ. You don't belong to yourself. Now, that can be scary. It can be scary not to belong to yourself. We fight against slavery. Slavery is not a good thing. And, and slavery to a harsh taskmaster is a bad thing. And what, what do you find in the Bible? You find Paul and you find James and you find Peter rejoicing that they are slaves and servants of the Most High God. What is it about belonging to God that makes it so beautiful? Well, when you belong to God, you belong to the only one who truly cares for you, the only one who truly loves you, and the only one who loves you so much that he will prove it because he will give himself up to make you holy. He will give himself up to make you his. You belong to God if you stand in Christ. And if you stand outside of Christ, you need to hear this. You belong to another master. You belong to another master. And the master you belong to, if you are not in Christ, is a harsh master. He will promise you everything. He will give you nothing. And his promises will destroy you. But there is one who will love you even after the devil ruins you. There is one who will love you even when you believed all the wrong things and given yourself to all the filth and your body has been horribly mutilated and broken. There is one who loves you so much that his body be more mutilated and more broken than any human body could ever be. It is the body of Christ on the cross. Are you ashamed of your bodies? Are you ashamed of how you can look? Are you ashamed of of who God has made you to be? There is no one who has been more ashamed in the body than Jesus. The Bible says the crucifixion was so horrific that we hid our faces from him. Have you ever driven by something on the highway and there's been an accident and everyone in the car turns to see the accident? We all rubberneck, we all look to see what's going on. Have you ever done that? And have you ever turned your head and seen something in the accident which is so brutal and so horrible that you turn your eyes away and you can't look? The Bible says the crucifixion of Christ was such that we hid our faces from him. Do you remember how the people went away after Jesus said it is finished and Father, in your hands I commit my spirit? Do you remember how they walked away from the cross? Do you remember that? The ones who said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Do you know how they walked away when they saw the death of Jesus? They walked away beating their breasts. And the Roman centurion who stood at the cross cried out, surely this man was the son of God. Why is purity important? Why would God not have us contaminate ourselves for the passing pleasures of sin because he loves you so much he gave his son to make you his and he bought you with a price here is the message we must give to those struggling with any kind of sin any kind of sin 
we are going to see increased wrestling with gender dysphoria in our culture. Make no mistake, it is being taught in our public schools. It is being drilled into children of five and six years of age. They will be confused. They will be shaken. They may be led to do things that will grieve the heart of God. But when they do, you tell them the problems. The problems they think they have in their body are fixed in only one place. It's through the broken body of Christ. And he loves them so much. So much that his body would be mutilated, mutilated, so they could be saved and they could be made whole. This is not merely about a fight for morality. This is about a fight for a God who loves broken sinners. So much he gave his own son. And it's a call for us to see as a church that who God has made you to be and who God has made me to be in Christ is beautiful and holy and loved by the Father. Flee sexual immorality. Don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God and you've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. So instead, use your body and use your soul and use your heart and use everything you have for the glory of the God who loved you and did not despise you when you despised yourself. The problem we have, the danger we have, is that we will make this fight a fight about morality instead of a fight about a God who loves broken people. And that we might even fall into the trap of thinking that broken people are the ones we should avoid or should shun when Christ was the friend of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11, Paul said, I told you not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But I didn't mean the sexually immoral of the world or else you'd have to leave the world. I meant those who call themselves a brother or a sister and yet live sexually immoral lives with them. Don't even eat. We cannot lose or compromise on the Christian teaching of holiness or on the biblical emphasis of what it means to be made in the image of God for all people in all times, Christian or non. But neither can we miss the fact the power of the gospel and the beauty of Christ is found in a God who so loved the broken that he became broken to save them. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, that's your story. You were bought at a price. You were broken. Christ died for you. Now you live for him. May the Lord help us to know the beauty of a Savior who so loved us and so loved sinners. May he help us to proclaim a true and uncompromising gospel that reveals sin 
so that may also reveal the one who is able to save the chief of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's join together in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we know that when Jesus came, it was said that there is a light shining in the darkness, and the, the darkness did not comprehend or overwhelm it. Father, you have called us to shine uh, in a world filled with darkness. Father, we pray that you will keep us holy. Father, when we fall into sin, you will make us quick to repent. When we have begun to think of the sins of this world as small things, that you will help us to see there are great things, huge sins, terrible sins, against the God who so deeply loves us and help us to repent of them and turn from them and strive for holiness. Forgive, forgive us when we fall into these sins. Lord, we also pray you will help us to know the beauty of a gospel that makes the wounded whole. Lord, you will help us to know the, the beauty and the power of Christ that can look into the midst of a world that is increasing darkness, where we will see a fallout that will break the heart of God, and yet to know that God is not powerless to help those who are hurting. He is not powerless to help those who have believed the lie, but he has given his own Son that we may freely and powerfully proclaim a gospel of salvation to all who will repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, will you guide us in this time as a church? Give us that balance of grace and truth. Give us courage and wisdom. But Father, most importantly, anchor us in the finished work of our Savior and glorify his name in us, we pray, and through us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.